0: On your dappled throne, eternal Aphrodite, cunning daughter of Zeus, I beg you, do not crush my heart with pain, O lady, but come here if ever before you heard my voice from far away, and yielding, left your father's house of gold and came, yoking birds to your chariot, beautiful, quick sparrows, whirring on beating wings, took you from heaven down to mid-sky over the black earth. And soon arrived, O blessed one. On your deathless face a smile. You asked me what I am suffering and why I call you. What I most want to happen in my crazy heart. Whom shall I persuade again to take you into her love? Who, O Sappho, wrongs you? If she runs away soon, she will pursue. If she scorns gifts now, she will bribe. If she doesn't love, soon she will love, even unwillingly. Come to me now and loosen me from blunt agony. Labor and fill my heart with fire. Stand by me and be my ally. Happy History Hump Day! It's me, Julian Rushbrook, your host of A History Most Queer. And today I thought it would be fun to talk about the poet Sappho. He was the inventor of lesbianism and sapphic love. And, according to the Assyrian ascetic, Tatian, she was a whorish woman, love-crazy, who sang about her own licentiousness. Victorian poet, John Addington Simmons wrote, All is rhythmically and sublimely ordered in the poems of Sappho, that supreme art lends solemnity and grandeur to the expression of unmitigated passion. He also wrote, about the loss of Sappho's poems, The world has suffered no greater literary loss than the loss of Sappho's poems. For some, she was a heterosexual woman with a husband and a daughter, whereas others saw her as a dangerous woman. These are rather polarized viewpoints of this woman, which is appropriate considering the way women have been viewed in general throughout history. I mean, the Madonna whore complex, that's a thing. So where does Sappho actually fit within literature and history. The truth of her life is probably somewhere in the middle. And like her works, the lacunas that exist within them open her life up to our imaginations. So let's start with what we can reasonably, uh, reasonably believe to be facts. She is considered to be the finest lyrical poet of her age and place. And this is despite the fact that most of her works are lost. Her works are some of, if not the first instances of a common, albeit wealthy, woman writing under her own name. These were not the musings of queens or the transcribed prayers of a princess slash priestess. Her silver pen has had effects that have shaped music and poetry for millennia. Lyrical poetry, by the way, is a form of poetry that was set to music, the lyre specifically. And I guess we can thank that for all of the kinds of modern uh, music that we have today. In regards to Sappho's life, what can be said is that she was born around the year 630 BCE in Mytilene or Erisus, on the island of Lesbos in the Aegean Sea. This was a part of the Hellenistic world of ancient Greece. Her family was wealthy and it is believed that she had brothers as some are mentioned in some of her works. Teasure. To me, he seems equal to gods, the man who sits facing you and hears you near as you speak softly and laugh, and a sweet echo that jolts the heart in my ribs. Now when I look at you, a moment my voice is empty and can say nothing as my tongue cracks and slender fire races under my skin. My eyes are dead to light, my ears pound, and sweat pours over me. I convulse greener than grass and I feel my mind slip as I go close to death. Yet I must suffer all, even poor. In general... Her family life comes from poems that she wrote or from biographies, although the earliest of those were written centuries after her death. All of this difficulty in paring down her facts has opened her up to legendary status. It also doesn't help that some of her poetry does some possible myth-building as well. Her husband, Kirkolas of Andros, may have been a real person. or perhaps just a joke. The word kirkiles can also mean penis. Likewise, the island of Andros literally means the island of man. So his name translates literally to the dick of man. So is it a joke or is it a fact? Her daughter Cleese is mentioned in some poems, but there is a debate amongst um, scholars about who this was. Some believe that Cleese was simply Sappho's daughter, whereas others claim that, again, the poet was doing a little bit of wordplay, Cleese being a word that also refers to a youthful same-sex liaison. From daughter to lover is a large range of meaning. Now, we do know for sure that she talks about women as lovers. Uh, some of the companions that are mentioned are Anactoria, Aethys, and Gonglia, which I really hope I'm pronouncing those correctly. Other members of her family are similarly a confusing mess, as later authors such as Ovid in his work Heroids names Sappho's father. Scamander is the name that Ovid gives for Sappho's father, and he claims that the man died when she was only seven years old. Was this an invented notion, or did Ovid have access to poetry that's now lost to us forever? Unfortunately, unless we find any new information, it's up to anyone's guess. For her life, it is claimed that Sappho was exiled from the island of Lesbos, around the year 600 BCE. She is said to have lived in Sicily for a few years, and this is due to her family supporting a Mythenian general, Piticus, who became a dictator over Athens for a decade. And then when it comes to her death, there is a legend by Menander that is really more legend than anything else. It's, It's pretty ludicrous. It's said that she fell in love with the ferryman Phaeon, a mythical character from Mytilian in Lesbos. He is said to have been old and ugly, but upon ferrying the goddess Aphrodite and accepting no payment from her, she gave him a divine ointment, then when he rubbed it onto his body, transformed him into a young and beautiful man. Anyhow. The story goes that Sappho and this beautiful ferryman are said to have fallen in love, but he grew to resent her, and so to cure herself of love, she threw herself from the Lucidian cliffs. I mean, yeah, it's, that's probably not true at all. Perhaps the greatest contributor to Sappho's legend is the fact that so much of it is lost. So much of her work, that is. And there are a variety of factors at play here to explain why we've lost so much of this. The first problem is time itself. Her first biography was written centuries after her death. With what we have today, it's difficult to fact-check the ancient authors like Ovid or Suda. An additional problem with the passage of time is that the archaic Greek that her works are written in has changed with time to a friend gone remember honestly I wish I were dead when she left me she wept profusely and told me oh how we've suffered in all this Sappho I swear I go unwillingly and I answered her be happy go and remember me you know how we worshipped you But if not, I want to remind you of beautiful days we shared. How you took wreaths of violets, roses, and crocuses, and at my side tied them in garlands made of flowers round your tender throat. And with sweet myrrh oil worthy of a queen, you anointed your limbs. And on a soft bed, gently, you would satisfy your longing. And how there is no holy shrine where we were absent, no grove. No dance, no sound. Much like how most of us nowadays can't really understand old, old English, so too did Greek scholars have difficulty with her form of archaic Greek. And another factor that cannot be ignored when it comes to dealing with the loss of her works is the fact that the church went after her heavily. In the year 380 of the Common Era, St. Gregory of Nazianizin, which I know I'm pronouncing that wrong, and you know what, I'm just gonna have to ask for his forgiveness. Anyway, he was the Bishop of Constantinople, and he ordered the burning of her writings wherever they could be found. Just a few years later, in the year 391, a mob of Christian zealots destroyed the great library of Alexandria. Many of her works, as well as writings from other literary sources, were forever lost. Then again, a few centuries later, in the year 1075, Pope Gregory the 7th ordered public burnings of her works in Rome and Constantinople. A great deal of what we have saved is from a bunch of fragments, whether on pottery or pieces of uh, papyrus that were sewn into or placed in the wrappings of Egyptian mummies. It's also a testament to the distribution scale of her influence that that we're able to find so much of her work granted in fragments, but from Europe, North Africa, and the Middle East. For my part, I find many of the fragments that have survived of Sappho's poetry to be reminiscent of the way haikus are structured. There's a minimalistic kind of nature to what remains. And it seems to cause the reader to really fully examine each word and its relation to the other words. And likewise, to contemplate the lacunas, the blank spaces, that we have that are missing. Our imaginations can fill those voids and it can it can paint a sort of interesting picture of what she's trying to say on Pelagon Pelagon the fisherman. His father, Meniscos, left here his basket and ore, relics of a wretched life. Dawn with gold arms. Go so we can see Lady Dawn with gold arms. Doom. From that poem, do we as the reader add or subtract from pieces that may be missing? Or are the haunting lines that remain enough to reveal a life of bleak disappointment? Is the doom negative, or is it just the ending of the night and the brightness of the sunrise? Is the beginning of a new day just another disappointment, like in On Pelagon? Archaeologists and scholars are still finding new fragments of Sappho's work. So I think that we can look forward to the future to learn more about this amazing woman and her contributions to our society. She is credited with inventing the term lesbian, and i think that's appropriate whether she would claim that title herself it's unclear the information we do have says that she definitely found other women interesting so we we can we can leave it at that then i suppose for my part i think she was probably a lesbian and i don't think she was married to the man from dick land or whatever he was called Um, a wonderful book that you can pick up has a collection of all of her works, at least as of the time of the publication of the book and it's uh, called Sweet Bitter Love Poems of Sappho and it's written by Willis Barnstone it has a pretty decent introduction that probably has far more information than I gave you here about her life and critics, fans. Um, I think it would be an interesting thing to look at. It's got all of her poetry, as I mentioned, and you can really get that feel of why she's still significant and important today. So that wraps up this episode of A History Most Queer on the poet Sappho. Coming up in the next few weeks, I'm going to be dropping episodes about British royals They were queer, and this is all in honor of the upcoming coronation of King Charles III. Whether you're looking forward to the ceremony or grinding your teeth at the excesses of royal pageantry, Come, come and take a listen. There are a lot of fun and interesting British royals that were queer and that have definitely made an impact on history. So come and join us for those. If you want to get in contact with us, uh, History Most Queer is on Instagram at History Queer, and you can email us at historymostqueer at gmail.com. See you next week.